Can't wait for heaven, amen? This is our fourth in a series, and I think we'll finish it off next week, for, at least for now. We're going to go to Revelation 21 tonight. If you asked a number of Americans if they believed in a place called heaven, most would probably say, yes, I believe in heaven. But if you ask them, what is it like? Or how do they get there? I suspect uh, you would get a wide variety of answers. Though most Americans cling to a belief in heaven, and uh, most think at least they're going there, very few have an accurate understanding of really what it's like. Some imagine that it is a foggy haze where formless spirits uh, float around. Others think that there are winged saints that kind of are on these fluffy clouds somewhere. And then, of course, there's Hollywood, and they portray things like uh, halos and harps, and others think that it's like going to the DMV. (laughs) From the Hollywood movie, Heaven Can Wait and All Dogs Go to Heaven. The fact is, heaven is a very real place, though, and the only real place to get something concrete and accurate about heaven is from the Word of God. And a lot of people wonder, frankly, do I even want to go to heaven? I mean, doesn't it, it sounds kind of boring to me, you know, just kind of sitting around. Well, I will tell you, if you think heaven is boring, that's because you're a boring person. That's the truth, because the fact is, heaven is amazing. It is absolutely incredible. Here's what Scripture says in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 9. It is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love Him. Beyond your wildest, most extreme imaginations of heaven, beyond what any book, any song, any movie, beyond what anybody has ever thought, said, written about, it is 10,000 times greater and more wonderful than anything we've ever thought. Now, there is one passage in Scripture that is really the premier passage about heaven. Some people wonder why there really isn't more about heaven in Scripture. Well, that's because... uh, the teaching and the preaching and the reading about heaven's kind of like candy. Too much of it make you sick, I'm sure. But uh, Revelation 21 and the first part of Revelation 22 is absolutely the, uh, the place to be if you want to get a grip on what heaven is like. And so today, with God's help and by His grace, we're going to go through the first eight verses of Revelation 21. And then next week, we'll uh, go over the balance of the chapter and then... The next week, the Lord willing, we'll have a wonderful service on Mother's Day. Looking forward to a great May. Now, when it comes to the subject of heaven, we want to make sure there is no confusion. Amen? Consider this uh, story I read this week. A couple from Oklahoma, older couple, decided to go to Florida for a long weekend to thaw out one particularly icy winter. Because they both had jobs, they had difficulty coordinating their travel schedule, and it was decided that the husband would fly to Florida on Thursday and his wife would follow the next day. 
Upon arriving as planned, the husband checked into the motel. He decided to open his laptop, send his wife an email back home. However, he accidentally left on one letter in her email address and sent the email without realizing the error. Over in Houston, a widow just returning from her husband's funeral, who was the pastor for many years, had been called home to glory. The widow checked her email, expecting messages from relatives and friends, and upon reading the first message, she fainted and fell to the floor. The son rushed into the room, found his mother on the floor, and saw the computer screen which read, To my loving wife, from your departed husband. Subject, I've arrived. <laughs> Message, I've just arrived and have been checked in. I see that everything has been prepared for your arrival tomorrow. <laughs> I am looking forward to seeing you then. Hope your journey is as uneventful as mine was. P.S., Sure is hot down here. <laughs> Confusion can be scary, amen? <laughs> well, hopefully we can clear that up here today. Let's bow for prayer. Father, we thank you that your word will keep us from confusion. We pray that, Lord, you'll teach us your word today in Christ's name, amen. There are six incredible features of our new home. The first one is a new cosmos. Verse number one, let's read verse one together if you would. Ready, begin. And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. Now the apostle John was given personally while he was on this island, the island of Patmos, he was personally given a, uh, a, a look at heaven. And so then he gives us a guided tour about heaven, really about future things. And that is called the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is just that. It reveals, as the word suggests, it reveals things. It is full of symbolism. The reason the Lord uses symbolisms is because heaven has such glory, the human mind is just unable to comprehend it unless God puts symbols together. Our grandchildren love my little 1958 ragtop Volkswagen Bug. If you drive around town and see a, a medium blue Volkswagen with a ragtop and a little sun visor, you'll know that's the preacher running around. The grandkids love it. Well, one feature of these old-fashioned Volkswagens is that they have three pedals on the floor. They're not used to seeing that, and I don't know if uh, all you young folks know what that is, but the third one over is called a clutch. There's an accelerator and a brake and a clutch, and so many of the grandkids, they love to ride in it, and I'll strap them in, and they say, where's the seatbelt? I said, it's right here. It's a seatbelt. It's not a shoulder harness. I strap it in and pull it tight, you know, and, and so anyway, they, they say, what are all those pedals? I said, I said, that's the accelerator, that's the brake, and that's the clutch. They say, what does it do? <laughs> what do I tell them? That's the go pedal. That's the, that's the stop pedal. And that's the, the pause pedal right there. And then it's like, but I have to talk very simply and little symbolism. Stop and we're going to go. And that's what God is doing in the book of Revelation. He is talking to us, maybe in some way, like spiritual children. Now, the first incredible feature of our new home is that it's going to be a new world or a new cosmos. 
Heaven is tangible. It is real. It's physical. It's not some mysterious, now you see it, now you don't, smoke and mirrors kind of a place. No, heaven is absolutely real. You'd say, well, I'm, I'm not sure if I really want to go to heaven. I mean, I love earth so much. Well, you got to know something. Earth is going to be changed. Look what it says in 1 Peter, excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 7. But the heavens and the earth, now by heavens, he's talking about the, uh, the sky that we see, the atmosphere, and the earth, which are now by the same word are kept in store, reserved unto fire against that day. Now that little phrase, reserved unto fire, literally means stored with fire. Did you know that everything that is around us has fire in it? This pulpit that you're looking at here, this glass, this wood, my suit up here, your seat that you're sitting on, all of it has little atoms just flinging around. I mean, they're just buzzing around. It is atomic energy. It's fire in there. Everything around us is full of fire. Even the earth is full of fire. We have an outer crust and we have all this dirt of different types. And when they were digging that well that we have here down over 500 feet, we have this big well with big concrete lined uh, uh, pipe going down 500 feet. You know, dirt is brown, right? Mm -mm, there's all kinds of colors of dirt. They'd pull out those samples. There was blue. There was even purple dirt that came out of 500 feet down there. And we're getting this rich water from way down deep there, uh, free from any kind of pesticides. Wonderful, clear well water here at our place here. It's beautiful. But the fact is, if you kept going on that earth, you'd get something that was far different from any purple or red dirt. You'd get molten lava that would just burst up. And that's what happens in these volcanoes. Our world is just full of fire. Everything is full of fire. And the Bible says one of these days, God's just going to snap his fingers and all those atoms are just going to, it's going to just blow apart. And all of a sudden, God's going to remake it. It's kind of like taking an automobile, you know, and they take it and once it's done, they smash it down. The other day I was driving down the road and I was counting, had six cars laying on top of each other, all of them smashed. And I thought, man, good night. Just a few years ago, those are things were thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000. Now there's six or five or six of them just smashed together. And they take those cars, they throw them in a furnace, and out comes a can of spam. And that's what they do. They just, uh, they just melt those things together. And that's what God's going to do. Look at verse 1. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. The word new there is a Greek word, kainos. It is the same word found in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Now, if you know anything about New Testament theology, you know that when we get saved, we get a new nature. But does that mean our old nature is gone? <laughs> Sadly, no. Just read the book of Romans and we'll realize that the old man is still there, sometimes called the old sin nature. So new doesn't mean that it's going to be totally something new. It just means remade. And that's what God says. We have been remade. 
And notice what it says at the last part of verse 1 here, back to chapter 21, verse 1. It says, there was no more sea. Seemingly a kind of a strange little footnote in verse number 1, no more sea. But I think that little phrase was very special to John. You know, uh, we are told that two-thirds of the globe is covered by water. It's amazing how much water separates nations, separates people. And John was separated from the rest of those he loved because of water. He was on an island, and he was seeing this vision, and he said, Hallelujah, there'll be no more sea. Now, we might be able to take a little island hopper plane, but back then it was a whole lot harder. And so he was simply saying there's going to be nothing that separates us. There may be other things he was saying. We won't need water because we have this living water from the throne itself. But whatever the case, I know at least one thing he was referring to was the fact that in this new world, there's going to be amazing and godly unity. Dr. W.A. Criswell was the late pastor of the First Baptist Church of Dallas. The First Baptist Church of Dallas, uh, for, the, for its first hundred years of existence, from the late 1800s, had only two pastors, <laughs> George Truitt and W.A. Criswell. Each pastored over 50 years, if you can imagine. Dr. Criswell was a great scholar. Someone once asked him, will we know each other when we get to heaven? His answer, we won't really know each other until we get to heaven. That's when we really do know each other. There is a godly unity and fellowship. No more sea. We're going to live very close. It's going to be a new cosmos. It's not only a new cosmos, it is a new city. Verse number two. Let's read verse two together. Ready, begin. And I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. See the picturesque language here. It's sort of poetic, but it's very, uh, very uh, symbolic. He said, since we're going to be physical people, new body, we're going to need a physical place. We're going to need physical streets. We're going to need physical seats to sit on. We're going to need a physical house to be in. And so the Bible reminds us that it is a place. Remember Jesus said, I go to prepare a place. He didn't say, I go to prepare an empty space, but a place. Notice what it says. It is coming down from God out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. Now we said in the first message that there are three heavens. There is the first heaven, the sky and the atmosphere that we see. There is the second heaven, which is the, the space between us and all the planets, the universe, all the galaxies. That's the second heaven. Then there is the third heaven, which is where God is. That's God's abode. Actually, however, there is a fourth heaven, and we talked about that. That is this new city. Now, the earth is going to be remade by fire. It's going to be totally transformed. It's going to be thrown into a furnace. It's going to come out something different, something wonderful, but still the earth. And then God says this big, giant cube of a city, this celestial uh, satellite is going to come down. It's going to be so amazing. It's going to just blow you away, kind of like the day when you get married, and that door opens and then walks down that aisle, the most amazing, beautiful gorgeous woman you've ever seen in your life. And you're thinking to yourself, 
Dear Jesus, how could I be so grateful? Man, that's the, I'm, the most, I'm the luckiest man in the world. I was looking uh, last night on our wall. We have a picture of when Pauline, Pauline and I got married. And uh, I was, we're going to celebrate our eighth anniversary here on Tuesday. And I was thinking about that beautiful day. I looked at that picture, how beautiful she looked then. And she's even prettier now. But just think of it. This heaven is going to come down in this fourth heaven, this big city. If you stretched it, it would stretch from Canada to Mexico, from California all the way almost to the East Coast, 1,500 miles cube, and this city comes down. It is a glorious city. Now, when you talk about a city, you might talk about it as a place, or you talk about it as its people. For example, if I were to say San Francisco is a beautiful city, you might say, I agree. If you've ever been there at night, it's just unbelievable, beautiful, and, or see the city there. If you go over there to Sausalito and look across the bay, and you see the, it's, it's just an amazing, amazing city. But if you also to say uh, San Francisco is a terrible city, I would say, amen, it is also a terrible city. As a place, it's beautiful. As its people, oh, there's some serious problems. But the New Jerusalem is different. Its place is good, but its people are even better. It's New Jerusalem. It is so beautiful that Abraham, back thousands of years before Christ, in Hebrews 11 verse 10, said he looked for a city which foundations and builder and maker is God. And so it's a city, this fourth heaven, this a beautiful place, this great satellite city that's so beautiful, it's like a bride. Now, you're one of those folks, you might like the country. You'd say, well, I'm, I'm kind of a country person. I like the country, don't like the city. Other folks in here, they really don't like the country. They get, uh, you know, claustrophobia up in the mountains, or they, you know, they want to see people. Some people love the city. Some people love the country. Well, the neat thing about this new city is, this new heaven, it's going to be there. It's going to be a city in the sense that we're all going to be close, but it's going to be country in the sense that we're going to have plenty of space. We're going to, it's beautiful. It's both combined. And that's what God is saying here. It's a new cosmos. It's a new city. You and I are going to dwell there. That's where we're going to be. We're going to be in that fourth heaven. Then there is a new closeness. Verse number three. Let's read it together, if you would, please. Ready, begin. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be with them and be their God. We're no longer going to have to pray, Our Father which art in heaven. We're just going to simply say, dear Lord or God, and he's going to be right there. You know, God has given us a big old basket of children, and we love them so dearly. When we were a young couple and growing up and having all these children, we were never at a loss for having people around the home. In fact, uh, you couldn't go, you couldn't even find a private place pretty much. But now they've all gone except for one, and many times uh, she's gone, and so I'll come around the house, and I'll look for somebody. I mean, it's quiet around there, and I'm trying, I go, Pauline, and I don't, so I go into the next room, Pauline, and I go in the next room, Pauline, and she'll be up there listening to her earphones, you know, and never answers me, and uh, I'll go to about a half a dozen rooms before I finally find her, and I run over there, and now that's, that's not what heaven's going to be like. You're not going to have to search for Jesus. He's going to be right there, and he's not going to have earphones on either. 
Now, cities are places with lots of people. And some people don't like that. But the fact is, if you loved them and if you were very close to them, you would like that. And if you lived in harmony and there was no crime and it was, you had plenty of space, you would think that's a utopia. And that's exactly what heaven is. It is a, it is a human utopia, finally. You know, the Christian concept of heaven is a city. Totally different than, for example, the Eastern religion. Buddhism, for example, has something called nirvana. And nirvana is that state, the highest state of transcending. It's that state where you feel nothing, see nothing, do nothing. All the effects of karma are gone now, and there you are in nirvana. Well, I'm going to tell you something. That is a bunch of baloney. First of all, who wants to live in a nothingness, doing nothing, feeling nothing? What is that? I want to be at a place where you talk to people, and the Bible says it is a city with humans who are in love with God and who dwell together in unity. Sadly, something that ever since the Adam and Eve, the earth has never known. But the truest beauty and the wonder of the Garden of Eden were not those luscious fruits that hung off those trees. When Pauline and I went to the Philippines, we were introduced to mangoes. I want to tell you, there's nothing like a mango from the Philippines. And they hang off of those trees there. You can just go pick that thing. You open that up, and I mean, it's like, it's like God's candy bar. You just bite into that thing. Man, how can anything be so good? But you know, the greatest thing about the Garden of Eden is not mangoes dropping from the sky or not your favorite food. The greatest thing about Eden was the fact the Bible says every day in the cool of the day, God came and walked and talked with mankind. And that's what heaven's going to be like. It's like taking a walk with our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a city. Utopia on earth has always failed. I'm told that the Epcot Center that Walt Disney conceived was his thought of utopia, but it's nothing more than a money-grubbing thing today, and whatever good it comes from it, the fact is, it is a utopia that has failed. The presence of God with His people in heaven will not be interrupted. On earth, we have interrupted fellowship. I have to sleep, and so I'm gone from those I love. I have to uh, work, or I have duties to do. But the Bible says we will never ever be apart from our Lord, and it won't get old. It'll just get sweeter and better all the time. You'll never get tired of God, and He'll get, never get tired of you. It's a city where we dwell together in a, in a true utopia. It's a city. It's real. A Sunday school teacher asked her preschool class, how many of you would like to go to heaven? All the kids but Tommy raised their hands. Tommy asked the Sunday school teacher, why don't you want to go to heaven? He answered, I'm sorry, but I can't. My mother told me I had to come home right after Sunday school. <laughs> the truth is, children know how real heaven really is, don't they? A new cosmos, a new city, a new closeness. Number four, a new condition. Verse four, let's read it together. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. This new city life is amazing for what it has. But maybe more distinguishing is what this city doesn't have. 
And that's what the Bible says, no tears, no sorrow, no death, no pain. There's a lot of tears today, folks. Tears of bereavement, as Judy mentioned a few moments ago. Tears of sympathy for those that we feel so sorry for. Tears of persecution over innocent faith. Tears of penitence for wrong that we have done. Tears of disappointment for our own sins and for others. But think of it. No more, it just says. No more. Sometimes I just want to, re- I just repeat those words to myself. No more. No more. No more. No more. No more. No more. It's coming. No more. No more. No more pain. No more heartache. No more. No more. No more sin. No more separation. No more. A philosopher said that man is the only creature when born who could do nothing for himself but cry. You think about it, our life basically is spent crying. We're born crying. We grow up crying. We get married and we cry. We have children and we cry. We cry all the time. Aren't you glad that tears are something that God understands? It's a language all its own, for sure. I was thinking when we were singing a few moments ago, hallelujah, hallelujah, hallelujah. Did you know that's the, you may not know a foreign language, I don't. I know a few words in Tagalog and a few words in Spanish and uh, a few other languages, but I know heavenly words. Did you know that hallelujah is a non-translatable word? In every language on earth, it's all the same, hallelujah. You know why that is? Because that's heaven language, hallelujah. When you say hallelujah, you may think you're just simply saying praise the Lord, But since it's a heavenly language, I'm sure it means so much more because the Bible says in heaven, all around the throne, they just keep saying hallelujah, 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 hallelujah. It is a heavenly language. And that's what God does. He turns every hurt to a hallelujah and every tear to a thrill and every Calvary to an Easter. The Bible says the former things are passed away. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. And if you've ever blown it, if you've ever made a mistake, the former things are passed away. It'll never haunt you again, ever. You'll never have to say, oh, man, why did I do that? Why did I say that? The pain that someone caused you, the hurt that you have, the former things are passed away. Hallelujah. The more of heaven we cherish, someone said, the less of earth we covet. A new cosmos, a new city, a new closeness, a new condition, and thankfully a new certainty. Verse number five. Let's read it together, please. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. This is one of the few times in the book of Revelation that God says he actually spoke from a throne. Why? Because God's trying to tell us something here that he wants us to write down. Behold, I make all things new. Now, even the English translation suggests that's not past tense. I make all things new. He didn't say, I made all things new, or I'm going to make all things new. That's in the present tense. What he's saying is, I am making all things new right now. John told, God told John, I'm making things new right now. I am making things new right now. God, 
right now is making things new for us. And when God completes the work of making all things new, it will stay new. Dr. Henry Morris, the great Christian scientist, says the law of entropy will be repealed. Nothing will wear out, nothing will decay, and nothing will age, nobody will atrophy. That law is ceased. God says everything will stay as it is. The Bible says that all of God's plans stay. Mankind plans things, but they may come or may not. But the Bible says His Word comes and stays there. Isn't that amazing? When we go to heaven, it stays. There's a lasting power to heaven. Like the last verse of the great hymn, Amazing Grace, the Bible says, And when we've been there 10,000 years, we'll still be shining just as bright as the sun. You don't ever have to leave heaven. It's not going to decay. Your invitation's not going to wear out. You're not going to, you know, get on God's nerves. The Bible says it's a certainty. It stays there. And then number six this morning, a new conclusion. Hallelujah. Verse number six, how great is heaven? Notice, first of all, the freeness of it. Let's read verse six together. Ready? Begin. Let's read it nice and loud this morning. Ready? Begin. And he said unto me, it is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give unto him that is a thirst of the fountain of water of life freely. Done. Finished. God's will accomplished in Jesus Christ. This world forever free from the curse of sin. And notice what it says. Not just done. Alpha and Omega kind of done. You know, sometimes we might say it's finished when, well, it means mostly finished. But God says, no, this is finished. Finito. It is done. Alpha and Omega, that's the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. The Bible is saying that because creation began without sin, and then man blew it, God's going to erase all of that, and He's going to finish creation without sin. What has messed up the planet Earth? Not global warming. People say, are you concerned about global warming? I'm much more concerned about global sinning. That's what's caused the problem in our world today. And every time we see any sorrow, every time we see tear, every time we see riots or we see racial bias or anything like that, I want to tell you something, folks. It's not global warming. It is global sinning. That's the problem. That's our issues today. People are all concerned about the carbon footprint. I'm more concerned about the curse footprint. And that's what God is saying here. He said, in my heaven, no more of that. No more. And he said, I'm going to give it to you free. God rules in heaven. And he said, no sins coming here. It's done. He said, mark this down. And notice the freeness of it. Look at this verse. I will give unto him that is thirsty. Now, if you don't want it, if you're not thirsty, fine. But if you're thirsty for God, if you're thirsty for heaven, then there's a fountain. It's not just a little one of the little cups. I have some little cups on my, right in the middle of the night, I take a drink, a little, tiny little cup, you know, take a little drink like that, a little bit. My salvation, not a little cup. The Bible said it's a fountain. It just keeps coming and coming and coming, and it never stops. The Bible said it is a fountain. It is a fountain of the best water you've ever had. It is a water of life, and it is given freely. You say, well, how do I get all that? You just drink it. That's what it says. It says if you're thirsty and if you'll reach out and drink it, it's yours. Now, drinking is an action. 
but it's an action of receiving. It's just receiving it. On one of our trips uh, overseas, we were in the airport, and I noticed a little boy standing over there by the window looking at the airplanes, and his face was just pressed up against that window. He was looking for that plane. He was looking to see it fly away. He was just so interested in all that's going on. I looked at him and thought to myself, that's me. My face is just pressed up against the window of heaven, and I'm just looking. I want to I fly away. I'm ready. Come on, Lord. And that's what we all ought to be. Oh, the freeness of glory. What is so great about heaven, not only its freeness, but its fullness. Look at verse 7. Read it together, please. And he that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. He'd say, well, how do I overcome? I mean, I don't feel like an overcomer. I feel like things are overcoming me. Look what it says in 1 John 5, verse 5. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. I will tell you one thing. If you have put your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are an overcomer. He has overcome for you. It says believing. And notice what it says. If you believe or you overcome, you inherit all what? Things. All things. What kind of things would you like to have today? Boy, if I could have my... Well, if I could have a thing, I would love to have a Ferrari, you know, or I would, well, if I could just have a house by a lake or over by the ocean, or if I could have a relationship, what, what thing is it that you most desire today? The Bible says in heaven, you'll get it. You inherit. You don't have to work for it. You get it because of your relationship. You are an overcomer. So God says, I will just give it to you. And then he notices the closeness. He said, I will be your God, and you will be my son. Oh, the hope that that gives us. Author Charles Allen tells this story. In World War II, as it was drawing to a close, the Allied armies in Europe gathered up many orphans from several of the European, especially Eastern European countries. They were very hungry. They placed them in camps, and they, well, they fed them very well, and they cared for them, and yet, despite their excellent care, they slept very poorly. They were, the children were very nervous and very fearful. Finally, a psychologist who was there came up with a solution. We will give each child a piece of bread to hold after they're put to bed. And this particular piece of bread was not to be eaten, but just to be held. One piece of bread held in your hand overnight. And the results were amazing. The children went to bed knowing instinctively that they would have food to eat the next day. And that guarantee gave these children a restful and contented sleep. You know what all these promises are from God? That's a piece of bread we can hold on to. And I'm thinking about it right now. God says it is a way that you can think about that future. Oh, the freeness of it. Oh, the fullness of it. But we wouldn't be right with the Lord if we wouldn't understand the forcefulness of God. God is not playing games. And God doesn't pull any punches. 
And he reads off a small but a very pervasive list of things that as humans we often get into. Sinful activities. Things that people do that they'd rather sin than worship God. Now, God, why does God list? It seems like, I don't know, like it doesn't fit in here. God's been telling about the glories of heaven, the glories of heaven. And all of a sudden in one verse, he just makes this very pointed list, you know, politically incorrect list, frankly. And God just lays it out here. Why does he do that? I think this is the reason, because he's trying to illustrate not only the blessing of what we're saved to, but what we're saved from. And I think he's just trying to remind us, thank God that none of this is in heaven. Verse 8, let's read it. But the fearful and unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burned with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. This is some serious talking. Oh, the vastly different condition and state of the unsaved. And God said these are people whose lifestyle choices serve as a very forceful backdrop to the glories of heaven. God says, here's a list of the things that people get into that keep them out of heaven. First of all, cowardice. Isn't it interesting? We might think about the rest of these things and say, yeah, whoremongers, murderers, yeah, that's some bad stuff. But fearful and unbelieving? But God reminds us that cowardice is a terrible sin. When we choose what people think or what God thinks about us, when we become a Twinkie, the Bible says we are more concerned about others than what Jesus thinks. Then the unbelief that God is not important and people rather spend their time watching video games and playing video games than going to church or reading their Bible. It's these kind of sins the Bible says keep us out of heaven. People say, oh, it's no big deal. Hey, if it keeps us from God, it's a very big deal. The Bible says unbelief and cowardice keeps us out of heaven. Notice what it says, the abominable. That's a big King James word, and it just means reprehensible. It just means something, frankly, that's disgusting to God. This week, I just, just because, I, I thought, you know what? What are the kind of things that God lists as abominable in the Bible? And I came across one author who had compiled all the things in Scripture that God called abominable, 60 of them, in fact. Among them are things that you might imagine, uh, same-sex uh, acts, uh, incest, but also God called things like sowing discord and pride as abominable. The fact simply is that God says that when we get into any of these things more than God, we are going to miss out on the glories of heaven, murder. So why, well, you know, I'm not a, thank God I'm not a murderer. But the Bible, Jesus said that hatred is murder. And folks, that is the crowning sin of our globe today, hatred. People hate each other because of the color of skin. They hate each other because of gender. They hate each other because of political beliefs. They hate each other because of their economic strata. They hate each other because of language. I mean, folks, our, our world is characterized. Yet, despite all the laws, despite our, all the education, this world is just burning with murder. It is a world of hatred, whoremongers. And you only have to read the Bible, which includes a whole list of sordid, terrible list of sins that people choose 
over God. Sorcerers, these are those who try to live in another world. Things like getting high, drug abuse, getting into witchcraft, whatever the case, just they want to get into something outside of this world. The Bible says that's going to keep you out of heaven. Idolaters, all unbiblical, all false religion, lying. The great tragedy of all this really is every one of these sins are forgivable. It's not like this is a list of things that, well, once you've done them, that's it, you're a goner. Folks, every one of that list, I would say that at least one or more of those we're guilty of. How many would be honest this morning and say, I am guilty of that, by, but by God's grace, I've been saved, amen? I've been guilty, yes. I'll tell you one thing, I've lied. I've been fearful. I've been unbelieving. There's sin there that is, but you know what? Hallelujah, by his grace, we, we don't have to choose these sins. And that's what God is saying. It's saying how unbelievable it would be to choose these sins over heaven. That's, I think, what God is just saying. Why choose some sexual act over heaven? Why choose some crazy unbelief or some false religion over heaven? It's just ridiculous. You know, it doesn't have to be that way. Pauline and I have had the blessed privilege of representing our church as a goodwill ambassadors to our missionaries. As a result, we've traveled a number of places, and it's always a, a great time. I'm not a great traveler, but one thing about traveling is you've got to be prepared. I mean, you've got to get all your stuff together, and we always go in one carry-on apiece, and uh, it takes a lot of thinking to make sure you wrap it all up and put it there in one place, make sure all your toiletries are there and make sure it's not too big. Make sure you have your ticket and make sure you have your passport. Those are the big things. But you know, if you're even going across the country or even to somebody's house for your relatives for a few days, I think being prepared is a wise thing. And yet, sadly, many people don't even take as much time to prepare for heaven as they might for going just to their neighbor. The fact is, we need to prepare for our ultimate journey. The stats on death are impressive. Studies have conclusively proved that 10 out of 10 people die. And it is sometimes sudden and unpredicted. The Roman philosopher Seneca said, this life is only a prelude. We think, oh, this is real living, folks. This is just a prelude. This is just a little tiny dot on eternity. I mean, it's not even a dot. Doesn't even, not even a dot. It's like a molecule compared to eternity. Life is a prelude. Folks, let's get it right. This is one thing. If you've ever got something right, this is what you need to get right. You can't make a mistake about heaven. It is serious business. A few months ago, we had the privilege of going down to Edwards Air Force Base to visit our family. We were told how to get there and that when we got to the front gate, that uh, Captain Matthew Spurgeon would be there to help us get past the guards. I was a little worried. It's really, when you go out the back way, it's kind of hard to find, and you're out in the middle of the desert, and you turn down a little road, and 
thinking, this is where the Air Force Base, but then you come there and there's big gates and there's big bears and there's big guns and there's people everywhere that are looking at you like, what are you doing here? How in the world are we going to get into that place? Well, I'll tell you how we made it in. The captain met us there and he told those guards, this is my father-in-law. This is Dr. Tim Pollock and his wife, Pauline, and they are my guests. They just looked at our driver's license, make sure that's who we really were. And they said, glad to have you. Go on in. And folks, it was all because of my relationship with the captain that let us in. And it's all about our relationship with Jesus that lets us into heaven. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed.